0: Welcome to the Life of Tea podcast, where we discuss tea as self-cultivation, all the life lessons, zen, awakening, and insights that come through a life of cha-dao. This will be the focus of this podcast developing and cultivating ourselves and our spiritual practice through tea. If you're interested in the more linear aspects of tea, how it's produced or made, you might want to check out our magazine Global Tea Hut, which also includes those topics. If you're interested in the practical aspects of brewing tea, we have a whole series of videos on YouTube called Brewing Tea. Also, You are welcome to come to our center, Tea Sage Hut, here in Miali, Taiwan, and sit a 10-day course where we incorporate all these aspects from the linear to the brewing tea to the spiritual cultivation all together, and you can take a deep dive and immerse yourself and ground yourself in this beautiful practice. We're so excited to have this forum to discuss all the life lessons that we can cultivate together through tea. Welcome, put on a kettle, get out some bowls, and let's drink some tea together.
1: Welcome to the second part of the extended history of tea. In the previous episode, we sketched out the outline of tea's story, talked about prehistory, the problems with written historical records, and the four great spiritual traditions of China and how they have always been connected to tea. I recommend listening to the previous episode first, if you haven't done so already, as that gives context to what we are going to discuss in this episode. I'm glad to welcome you back on the podcast to discuss the extended history of tea, Buddha.
0: Thank you. It's really great to be here. And uh, I think some of what we'll talk about today will also overlap what we talked about last time, so it's all the more important to maybe listen to... Last time, last uh, episode of this history of tea podcast, um, and I call I'm calling this the extended history of tea because it's not my intention to like get bogged down in all the dates and facts. We're going to talk a little bit more about some specifics this time, but tea is also huge and vast. We would need like 20 podcasts, even if we were to uh, to try to cover the history of tea in in the from the perspective of like knowledge and data, like dates and and people, and times, and things that happen, you kind of have to focus, you have to choose a lens, because first you have this huge and vast uh, history of tea as it relates to China, and then of course you have Japan, Korea, uh, and the West has its own, like there's books about the history of tea in the West as well, so there's a huge amount of information, far more than we can cover in, in one podcast, even seven podcasts, so I don't want to get too bogged down in in all of that. And also last time we talked about why we we're calling it the extended history of tea. And I want to kind of return to that topic, and uh, return to a conversation about that, which is to start with the kind of uh, a really important, um, a really important distinction um, that that comes from the art world that I like a lot, which is the difference between seeing and knowing. And um, and seeing is something more intuitive and knowing is something, you know, that is based on, on data and research and, and facts. And, you know, in, in terms of art, there's there's sometimes the idea that we can be a scholar of something, that we can be a scholar of, a, of an art form, for example, like a critic, and that from the knowledge we can get to the seeing But that's actually a reversal of the of the order of things the natural order of things is that we see first and then from that intuition we can create knowledge Mm. this is the zen perspective right and there is a certain a certain extent to which the ability to see is kind of inborn it's a talent and this is why some people are artists and 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 thrive in that domain and, but the ideal is that we have the both seeing and the knowledge. It's not that one's better than the other. It's that we we have both, um, but that the knowledge comes out of the seeing, as opposed to trying to create seeing out of knowledge, which doesn't work. You can't make aesthetics out of knowledge. You can tear a flower apart and analyze all its parts, but in doing so, you've destroyed its life. Mm. And that's you know a lot of what the kind of knowledge approach does. So what I'm saying is that like you know look look you can get books that are Uh, criticisms uh, or historical analysis of religion so you get a book that's like the history of zen but what i'm saying is that a critic of religion who has no religious sentiments or experience their criticisms have no force in my world Hmm. i'm not interested in what they have to say if they don't have the actual feelings that that created that they're just looking from the outside is there some value in such a lens yes i mean i'm not i'm not trying to say there isn't any value in it but it's a very little value especially if one is uh practicing and operating within that thing so a critical history of tea written from the perspective of someone who's not deeply immersed in a practice and life of tea is is also like knowledge without seeing Mm. it's knowledge without intuition it's knowledge without without seeing it's so the 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 student of philosophy is not the same as a philosopher someone who knows a lot about history is not necessarily a historian so my point is that you know reading a some kind of collection of facts and dates you know and you have this this so-called academic um conscience where they like to just you know the idea is to not leave out any facts at all and uh you know to sort through the who and when and where of things um you know that those dates and those facts without before that the actual practice and life and like to be within tea within the spirit of tea right where let's let's discuss a place in which this is problematic in the modern era we've talked a little bit in previous podcasts about the recreationalization and commoditization of tea and there's nothing really wrong with that I'm not opposed to tea as beverage or tea as hobby mm-hmm. It is those things to me as well sometimes I drink it in a mug while I work sometimes I geek out I mean global tea App magazine is the evidence of the great extent of my tea geekery but um for, if, if that's your only perspective right so you're coming from a a perspective of knowledge without intuition and you're coming from a modern view of tea as hobby or um or as the beverage and through that lens you start analyzing the the written record of tea in like the tang and song dynasty so you start studying lu yu and these other poems and these other times and these people whose practice of tea was incredibly spiritual Mm. and 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 their whole cosmology of the world was was founded on m- mythology and and spirit. They didn't have a materialistic worldview. Mm-hmm. They weren't educated in a materialistic worldview the way you and I were. They were educated into a very spiritual worldview that informed all that they did, mm-hmm. including heavens and gods and meditations and spirits and like th- their whole world was was that. And their and then they had this deep immersive practice that was, you know housed within that cosmology and the rites and rituals and ceremonies and holidays in the year and the language and the clothes and everything that actualize such a cosmology in the life of a human being and so when you're looking at that from the outside again the to me if a if a human being is going to write a, a book about you know ethics and how one should uh, live in an upright way what moral conduct means Mm -hmm. whatever the conclusions of their ethical arguments be should are that person should at least be striving to keep that such a moral conduct Mm -hmm. doesn't mean they're they're perfect at it but they should at least be trying in their life to to um to live in the way that they're suggesting otherwise their 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 ideas and their arguments are deflated Mm. by their by the hypocrisy, right? Mm-hmm. So the same thing, like you can't really understand these things without getting into them. Cause a lot of them are about seeing they're about the mystery mm-hmm. and you can't, you can't see the mystery with the, with knowledge. You can't see the mystery of life by taking the flower apart and seeing what it's composed of. You kill it in the process. So from intuition, you can create knowledge, but it's not necessarily true that you can produce Intuition out of knowledge, right? So you can, you can, and you know, some of this, like I said, it's just inborn talent, the ability to see. But you know, what we can do, certainly, like Zen is suggesting, that you know, when you really want to learn to see, you have to learn to clear your mind of all of your um, personal and cultural fabrications. So your personal opinions and ideas about things, your uh, your cultural. Ideas, the the parts of you that draw on the history of humanity and where you were raised and the worldview that you were raised in. So without any personal or cultural fabrications, if you can learn to see, right? We call this mushin, which means no no mind, but shin also means heart, right? In the Far East, there's no separation. So this this mushin is a phrase. It doesn't mean confusion or uncertainty or blankness. It means clear seeing, clear water, and with that, with the help of that, you're better able to see beauty. Right? Mm. It's like a lot of um when you're a beginner in tea or if you if you and you're starting out when you don't have this intuitive capacity because you were raised in a society that didn't foster it and it wasn't inborn in you then you won't see the the beauty in in one could say the the deeper pieces of teaware the ones that are more like wabi Mm -hmm. like you're looking at a tea bowl for example and you're like oh that's ugly right but you're looking with perception you're looking with uh knowledge you're not looking with the heart you're not looking with the with the real seeing. so how does this all relate to the to to the history of tea is the same thing to really see the the history of tea you have to be deeply immersed in a tea practice uh, to the point that you've become it to the point that the mystery the the seeing part the intuition part not the knowledge part not the dates that has to precede the knowledge and the dates Mm -hmm. The actual seeing, the actual experiential foundation, right, of the of the deep and powerful messages within this plant as a spirit medicine, the the living of a daily life of Cha Dao, right? Not just as a hobby or beverage, but as your practice and way, right? When that is cultivated, and this way of seeing is cultivated, that's clear of any personal or cultural biases or fabrications and you're seeing you know reality you could say as it is that's the zen Mushin. when you have that combined with some talent combined with like an immersion over many years in the practice of tea then the history of tea makes sense then the history of tea is all very clear Mm -hmm. right otherwise from it's just it's just facts and dates and they don't always make a lot of sense and you have to, if you're just taking that knowledge approach, anything that's not recorded, you have to just leave it blank. Mm-hmm. But when you're coming out of intuition and your knowledge is formed out of intuition, right, then those those parts aren't blank.
1: Mm-hmm. So you can They're, connect the dots. In a yeah, place. you can
0: connect the dots. They're full. Everything's full and rich and makes sense. Um, whereas the other way, if you're trying to go from knowledge to the intuition, to the actual practice, it's a little bit hard. hmm you can't really do that. So, um, you know, this is akin to me to the Prajnaparamita Sutras in, in Buddhism, like the Diamond Sutra, which is intentionally illogical and makes no sense. And when you read it, you're just, it's just a bunch of gibberish. The first translators of it into English, like Edward Kahns and some other authors like this, just said this is nonsense. They didn't even want to comment on sections of it. Their commentaries ends at like chapter twelve because they're just from twelve to twenty six chapter. I think he himself doesn't comment because he just feels it's not doesn't make any sense. There's nothing to say. But the point is, if you if you have the right outlook, if you have the right view and perspective, the right worldview, and you have the right habits in your life, which in that case would be like you know a Buddhist worldview and Buddhist practices like meditation. Mm-hmm. If you have a strong meditation practice that goes on for years, so you have a real habit uh, of a strong meditation practice and of entering the meditative mind daily, and you have on top of that uh, the right worldview, then the Diamond Sutra will make sense. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it, it doesn't. It's just a, it's illogical, and so it won't make sense to the mind. So the same thing with with art and with beauty and with um, with the uh, history of tea. Right, and that's how you can approach things. And so that's what I mean by an extended history of tea is that I'm not going trying to go from knowledge to intuition. I'm going from intuition to knowledge. Mm -hmm. Right. So I started with a long practice of of tea, a deep practice of tea. I'm also an artist, a painter, a poet. So my ability to see was kind of already there uh, even as a child, and um, then you know with, with the meditation, I've fostered that. I'm not. Uh, yet you know there's those who are much greater at it than i am but i can see and uh and then you couple that with the with the habits with the with decades of of deep immersion in a practice in a life of tea right then my view onto those onto that history is is very different and um it's not meant to be just like here's a collection of facts of the who where when And leave the and anything that's blank is blank, Mm -hmm. right? And I'm not and I'm not again. So I I can't overstate this. Yeah, from my perspective. And if you don't want to agree with this, that's fine. I'm not trying to take a stance on how reality is. It's just from my perspective. And from others, I think who um, are living and working in practice. While a, a book on the history of Zen written by someone who doesn't practice Zen and never has. Might be interesting in the sense that you're getting a, the outsider's perspective, and it might add some depth. Mm-hmm. It's also extremely weak and lacks any force because without that practice, they don't really understand the inner essence of what is uh, 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 the inner essence of of what is being talked about yeah. in the historical facts that they're they're getting. So, what I'm saying is that seeing and knowing aren't they aren't like the up they aren't like the left side and the right side they aren't like t- two different sides of, of this of the same coin they are the exterior and the interior mm. they're the inner and the outer mm-hmm. seeing is the inner knowing is the outer and it's tough to go from the outer to the inner it's easy to go from the inner to the outer yeah huh so in Taoism, we have a saying right it's not the it's not the depths that fear the surface it's the surface that fears the depths right the big fish that lives at the bottom of the lake he's not afraid to go to the surface it's the little fish at the surface that are afraid to go to the depths mm-hmm. going from the depths to the surface is nothing going from the surface to the depths is difficult and when you're when you're looking at facts and dates and stuff and you're looking at that kind of book the scholarly book without the inner feelings you're just looking at the skin you're looking at the surface right so um, better to go from the inner to the outer better to to uh, if you're going to only have one i'd rather have seen Mm. rather be a child and at least be able to see and know nothing mm-hmm. than to know a bunch of stuff and not be able to see yeah uh, so I you know that personally, but both of them is the ideal both uh, singing and knowledge. so I'm not opposed to historical books. I read them um, that kind of data is fine. I'm fine with it. but uh, as an approach, it only gets you so far because again there's so many gaps the historical record gets more and more myopic as you go back because less and less people are literate so less and less people are writing so you get less and less perspectives the further back you go and also that myopia is traveling along class lines we talked about this last time so it's only the wealthy who are writing
2: mm-hmm.
0: and they're writing not always the truth or they're just writing their perspective of the truth you're not getting the the unknown which you know that's when you when you launch from there into like into art go into art, which very much relates to tea because of all the teaware that's made. Uh, Not just like, you know, tea poems, tea tea books, which we're going to talk about, but also tea, you know, tea braziers and teapots and all the history of all teaware that's being made. And in Asia, you know, it was all, uh, you know, one of my favorite books talks about some of these topics that we're talking about now. It's called The Unknown Craftsman. It's a wonderful book. It's an absolute must-read for a tea lover. It talks about some of the things that I'm mentioning right now. Um, and, you know, it's about, in in those days, in all of Japan and Korea and China, you have these incredible masterpieces of art and often no name on them. Hmm. In, in Yixing, they would put the name of previous masters to homage the lineage where they learned these techniques. So they would put like Chong Mingyuan, it's one of the most common ones, mm-hmm. even to this day. And this put all the focus of quality on that seeing.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Because there is no name and date, there is no where and when and how. So the quality is 100% in the, in the living spirit of the of the piece of art. You see it or you don't. There's no knowledge. Mm-hmm. Right? It makes studying Chinese art history a pain because they, they, they copied. They copied to learn. They copied, of course, to forge. But they, they weren't so hung up on provenance. Mm. And as the Western model has infiltrated Asia in the modern era, it has severely uh, decreased the quality of teaware, for example. Of all art, I would suggest, but teaware especially has gone way down in the last 100 years because of this well you know there's a lot of reasons why this this isn't the only reason there's other reasons why the quality of art has gone down is you know people not as devoted they're more distracted by modern life etc but the, the 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 point that i'm trying to make the the factor that i'm trying to hone in on as to why the art has decreased in value is the is this this idea from the west that the who what when is more important than the art, Hmm. right? Andy Warhol in in many ways was trying to satire this, that you can just spray paint something and sign your name. And if you're famous, it's worth a bunch of money. So how much is it worth? How rare is it? Who made it? When they made it is more important than the art itself
1: than the actual artwork
0: right so then what happens when this comes east what happens what happens is artists then in order to make a living they have to distinguish themselves from other artists so it no longer becomes about the spirit of that thing and if we're talking about craft which is mostly what we're talking about when it comes to teaware which is art that's meant to be used right Mm -hmm. so it's part of daily life the the form part, the function part will be lost. Because before, they were, over hundreds of years, they perfected the function. So the bowl is the perfect shape, or the pot is the perfect shape, it's the perfect style for brewing tea. Mm -hmm. And then within that function, they learned how to exercise their creativity in form, Mm -hmm. and create masterpieces. And it has nothing to do with them, So it has nothing to do with a desire to distinguish themselves from others. It has a desire to, it has everything to do with a desire to elevate the art itself, both in function and in form Mm -hmm. and nothing to do with them. But when it becomes about them, they have to distinguish themselves from others just for the sake of distinguishing themselves. Yeah. So they start creating things that are different, not because the spirit of that medium demands it to be thus, not because the function would be improved by that change but just because they want to look different than others and often that creates things that are incredibly dysfunctional
1: yeah.
0: both in terms of material and in terms of their uh, appearance mm-hmm. and to those with a real eye that are really seeing a craft that doesn't function is hideous mm. right a piece of clothing that you can't wear is, is hideous to me um, a, a teapot that you can't use because its design has overpowered its function so much that you can't use it anymore. That's mm-hmm. to me hideous. It's not even attractive,
2: mm-hmm.
0: right? So this is the this is the you know this is the, this factor that I'm talking about. And so um, you know as that as that came to to the east, you had more of this, and it's going on even today, where people ma- are making a living by their name, but not by the quality of their work anymore. And um, that that is more you know that is more conducive to lower quality, less functional teaware. that's not made out of the spirit of tea. It's made out of the spirit of I want to be different from other people, mm. um, and I want my stuff to look different. I want my stuff to be identifiable, and I want to immediately associate I want it immediately associated with my name, so that when people see it, they're like, "Oh yeah, there's Wuda's art." Mm. But it should be the opposite. The less Wuda there is in the art, the better it is, the more it's coming from that mystery, from the place beyond, from beyond me. Which is the other part of why they didn't sign their name, because they didn't feel like the creator. Because when you're in a real flow, it's the Tao that's creating that teapot. So it's not you that made it, it's, it's two things that made the teapot. When you're in a real flow, what makes the teapot? Number one, you're training. If you're in I Ching and you're like a 20th generation potter. Right, you grew up and were trained how to make pots by someone who was trained how to make pots by someone who was trained how to make pots by and so on, all the way back. Mm -hmm. And that training, which has evolved and refined itself over time, is one of the reasons that that pot is coming forth, because that training's in your hands. You don't even have to think about it anymore. So that's why they pay homage to past masters Mm -hmm. with their name on the bottom, because it's that training, it's that tradition that's making that pot. And then also, if it's a real master, it's the Tao flowing through them, Right. And so, in both cases, it's it's coming from beyond. And every artist knows that feeling of channeling from the beyond, and the, having their creation flow through them. You know, when you write poetry, when you write the best writing I do, just comes out like vomit. I have no idea where it comes from. Like a whole article's done in like thirty minutes. And sometimes the guys come upstairs and see that I've written like fourteen pages, and they can't believe that I've written fourteen pages in, in like an hour or two. But it just. <laughs> it comes from somewhere else. Those are the best articles that I write or the best poetry comes from that. It's the same with the best painting. The best tea is prepared from such a space too. So getting the self out of the way, Mm -hmm. you know, and uh, getting back to that seeing. And that, so that, this is a long introduction, but it's essential before we dive into, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to focus in for as far as details, I'm going to focus in on China just and mostly, I might mention the West a little bit, but you know, like I said, we, we'd have to do a whole encyclopedia. We'd have to do like early China, then you know, dynastic China, then we'd have to do Japan, and then Korea, and then uh, the West, and then other parts of the world where tea is influential. So the the history of tea itself, you know, the dates and stuff, they're they're out there. There's a lot of books you can go explore. Um, and f- for the purpose of this podcast, I, I don't really want to add to that discussion very much mm-hmm. because it's, there's a lot of that out there. So I wanted to add more the intuitive approach, you know, the part that fills in those dots. And if you're more analytical and you're approaching T more from a place of knowledge and science and like uh, data, right, then, you know, these two podcasts aren't really going to appeal to you all that much because I'm coming from intuition and creating knowledge out of intuition, not vice versa. And uh, that's how I live. And that's um, what what matters to me is not the um it's not to say that i'm not interested in the historical facts i absolutely am they're fundamental i'm not rejecting them in any way super interested i'm super keen i study them all the time um but they are only of relevance to me from in the sense of their relationship to a deep immersive lifestyle and practice and way of being and way of seeing and then they are just as a bunch of stuff to memorize. And then through the memorization of that data, a try, try to get to a place of practice. Right? But you can see in all kinds of fields, in all kinds of arts, including tea, including uh, film critics, including all kinds of things. People who have a lot of knowledge, they kind of dupe the public because we read their critiques and we think, oh, this is someone who knows a lot. Mm-hmm. But without that ability to see, they really aren't guiding anyone anywhere. They're just able to see the surface only, and they're not able to see within, right? Just like if you read a, if you read a, just a bunch of facts about the history of Zen, it's going to mostly be a bunch of nonsense, a bunch of dudes slapping each other and chopping each other's arms and fingers off and saying outrageous things like, you know, does a dog have Buddha nature? Moo, like just saying random gibberish that's going to make absolutely no sense to you, mm-hmm. unless you're rooted in that practice. You're not going to be able to discuss it. How do you discuss it, right? There's nothing to, you know, my master used to always say, there's nothing more unzen than calling yourself Zen, <laughs> right? You try to catch Zen, you open your hand, there's nothing there. You're not going to get it from an outsider's perspective. There's no, you, your criticisms hold no force. Same with like, you know, for someone to criticize films, they should be able, they should be someone who is moved deeply by films, first of all, and second of all, understands the craft, so they understand the craft of producing films to some extent. They don't have to be a full-on like director themselves, but they understand the craft and what goes into it. And there's someone who is moved deeply by films, hmm. and so they're bo- therefore able to see, not just to know. Mm-hmm. And so it's not just a knowledge, right? So those who collect a lot of knowledge about things, there's people incredibly knowledgeable about tea that can't brew tea. So they know all the data they know how oolong's made they know red tea they know which mountain which comes from which tea they know all the facts they know some historical facts they know a whole bunch of information right and and there's a lot of that in a lot of fields right you could say they have they have information but they don't have wisdom Mm -hmm. they don't have prajna which is intuition it's another way of seeing Mm -hmm. right our perceptions are often misleading Our perceptions of things are often uh, misleading, unclear, illusional, delusional, right? Even on an absolute practical level, right? You look at a rose and you say, oh, that's just a rose. But it's actually not. Inside the rose, there's water and sunshine and uh, elements from the earth. And uh, so it's not so simple, right? And so when you start creating knowledge and understanding based on intuitive seeing, penetrative seeing that's prajna that's wisdom Mm. and when that happens then uh understanding and knowledge have a whole other role to play as opposed to like trying to go from knowledge to practice that's like trying to go to from a step-by-step knowledge-based intellectual perspective to actual like skillful tea brewing this is why in many of my courses when I travel around the world, I don't give step-by-step brewing. I do a little bit, but I'm not interested in like step one, take out the pot. Step two, heat the water to 95 degrees. Step th- Like that approach of like time temperature amount, that brewing approach is is silly, right? Because it, it's so limiting that it will hold you back. Mm. Like, okay, water at a certain temperature, but heated on what kind of fire? In what kind of kettle? What kind of water? Where'd you get it from? And you can't say like five grams of tea because five grams of tea in a huge pot is very different than five grams of tea in a small Kung Fu pot. Mm-hmm. And steep for how long? Also, like, you're never going to get to a place where you can, you know, let's take another example, athletics. You're never going to get a place where you can play play uh, some sport professionally by following some kind of step by step formula. It's got to be intuitive. It's got to be in you. You got to be be able to just flow in it you know and it doesn't it 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 starts it starts in doing it starts in that not in the um you know starts in some kind of inborn talent and then a lot of practice so a lot of immersion in that thing not knowledge about the thing the knowledge comes later first the person even as a child starts playing that sport they immerse their life in that sport Mm -hmm. and then they grow up and then they get some knowledge about the sport and the knowledge does help but they don't go from knowledge to immersion If you go, if you start with knowledge and then you try and go deep into tea as a practice, the knowledge might get in your way. Not necessarily, but it might. Mm -hmm. It might, it might, your intellect might block you from entering. Just like uh, a bunch of data memorized about Zen will prevent you from getting into the Zen mind, right? So the the Zen mind is intuitive. It's a meditative mind. So we need, we need uh, to... You know, if you're a beginner, having a bunch of tea knowledge might get in the way of your ability to prepare tea well. It might be better to start with no knowledge and use your intuition. Mm -hmm. And, and just, you know, this is why we start with leaves in a bowl tea in our tradition and as little knowledge as possible. Just put some leaves in a bowl, add some water, and sit with it in quiet. And as the intuition develops, knowledge will come later easily. Mm -hmm. So that's the, that's the, um, kind of basis on which uh historical discussion of tea makes sense to me and uh to jump into it though you know i think i don't know if we talked how much we talked about this last time but i think the the like segue from that discussion into discussing some of the again i'm going to focus just on china and focus on some of the big characters you you we have to just for time constraints we have to just hone in on some of the big names But as I said in my discussion of the unknown craftsmen, for me, there are millions of unknown um, monks and nuns and artisans and craftsmen and tea lovers and tea saints and tea people that are not mentioned anywhere in history. And the only way to connect to them is to get deeply immersed in the practices that they have left us Mm -hmm. in living authentic traditions, right? Right. And not to say that those practices haven't changed and evolved since their day, they have. But the spirit of them, the energy in them, their life is in it, you know. So um, when I went and served tea the Hopi, they gave me the greatest. They wanted to give me. They said the greatest gift they could give anyone, and it was some of their corn. And uh, you know, I thought about it a long time, and I realized that you know, this had this corn was the genetic product of a lot of uh, maybe you know tens of thousands of years of hopi culture it had fed their people and they had guided the life of the corn obviously through genetic pressure and and so it's a the strains of corn that exist they they chose to plant this one versus this one and when factors arose and stuff so they you know they were this a kind of genetic early crude genetic modification that's been going on since the beginning of agriculture Mm -hmm. which is you know um in their case maybe even before the dawn of agriculture ten thousand years ago they were doing some kind of selective something even in their gathering of of corn or whatever but um so th- this the genes of the corn and the genes of the hopi are all bound up together for thousands of years and uh, they they guided this this plant to what it is and it holds their memory it holds their you know it fed their people as they created it because there's without the hopi there's no corn without the corn there's no hopi and so they're, they're really immersed and, and wrapped up in each other. And so when I have that corn, you know, within that corn are the births, lives, and deaths of thousands of generations of Hopi people and their work. Because that's what they spent the primary amount of time, the most of the time that they had on this planet, they spent farming corn. So most of their energy as they were alive were spent devoted to this plant. And so that corn contains with it all the unsaid, unknown people. And so when we, when we, this is another aspect of this whole thing. Is you know we talk about these few shining stars that are left in in the historical record. They're just the if the historical record's a thousand page book, they're just one page. Mm -hmm. Underneath that, you have thousands of pages of unknown tea lovers that aren't left to us in history. They devoted their whole life to tea. Whether it be farming tea, processing tea and evolving the processing of tea, or teaware crafts and arts and evolving that, or tea brewing and the art of preparation and evolving that and handing it down. And the only way to connect with these people, all this huge ocean of unknown tea people, the only way to connect to them is through the lineages they have left behind. -hmm. Through the spirit of the practices they've left behind, and those those, again, those practices have evolved and changed. But the spirit, their spirit, and their evolution, their their improvements, their uh, life's work is still within that thing. It's still in there in that spirit, and you can connect to them there. So this is another aspect in which the knowledge is inadequate, and you the intuitive seeing is is much more profound. And the you know, I we briefly mentioned this maybe in the last podcast, but it's really important to. Uh, state again that this idea that that you receive from a lot of books and articles and things that are talking about the history of tea uh, that you know in the tang dynasty they boiled tea and in the song they whisked tea and then in the ming they steeped tea right that is a gross oversimplification and it's you know it's wrong it's akin to saying in the 1960s americans wore bell bottoms i think i've used that example before Certainly that is true, but it's also false. My grandfather never wore bell-bottoms. Not every American wore bell-bottoms in the 1960s. Not every Chinese person boiled tea in the Tang Dynasty. Aboriginals in, the, in Yunnan, in the jungle, were not using all the accoutrement of Lu Yu mm. and brewing tea in some complicated way. Right? They were steeping tea, they were boiling it, they were doing it in other ways. China is a huge place with tons of ethnicities and tons of brewing methods that have always coexisted. And we're going to talk about the first emperor and his—he's outlawed powdered tea and stuff—and then and then steep tea began again in the Ming Dynasty. But it, you know, we translated Ming texts in global tea out, and you can see they're a blend of different brewing methods because it's not like overnight those brewing methods just ended. Mm-hmm. It, that took a uh, hundred years for it to slowly change fully, and it's not, it, you know, and and even then, throughout the kingdom, throughout the empire, you have all kinds of people brewing tea in all kinds of ways. So a better approach to, in the Tang dynasty, they boiled tea, in the Song dynasty, they whisked tea, and in the Ming dynasty, they steeped it. A better approach to that would be, a more accurate approach would be to say that it was popular amongst certain segments of Chinese people, mainly the nobles and literati who were writing history Mm -hmm. in the capitals, in the big cities, to boil tea in the Tang and to whisk it in the Song and to steep it in the ming Mm -hmm. so that certain certainly was the uh was the case for for those you know for that segment of population right but china's a lot of people and the steeping of tea for example was always going on Mm -hmm. throughout all the other brewing methods of course people steep tea in fact we'll get back to that when we talk about the ming dynasty that that had that was always there yeah. Leaves in a bowl was always there. Boiling tea was always there. So even when they started whisking it, it still was boiled. And even the, so, you go to different regions, and it would be prepared differently at different times. So there's, it's not to say; it's just to say that it was popular. That's what was popular, right, amongst the like you know city folk who wrote history, and that can give you a sense that those brewing methods were bigger than they actually were. And there was actually multiple brewing methods always that lived and survived in, in China. Mm -hmm. at any time so that's important um so um we're going to kind of use that as the launching point into some of the history just talk about those kind of mainly those the, the four more modern dynasties which is you know tang which is 618 to 907 and then we're gonna go to song which is 960 to 1279 and then ming which is 1368 to 1644 and then Qing, which is 1644 to 1911. So these four dynasties, you know, just for the sake of, of abbreviation, because, you know, we don't have time to cover the whole history of tea in China, let alone the whole history of tea period. Mm -hmm. So, um, just talking about these in relationship to brewing methods and how they brewed tea and some of the big characters in, in that time is more just what I would like to cover, um, and all from the perspective of coming out of intuition, as I said. Um, so, in the, Tong di- in, the, in the Tang Dynasty, um, you know, there's two really big characters. Um, the first, of course, is the T. St. Lu Yu, who wrote the Cha Jing, which we translated in September 2015. It's our extended edition. You can go read it. It has hundreds and hundreds of annotations, too, which will help you to understand it, because it is obviously medieval. It's a long from a long time ago, and... And uh, even Chinese people would have difficulty reading it. You need notes. Mm. Just like you need notes to read Shakespeare or something. Um, he he lived from roughly 733 to 804, roughly. That's the, the time of his life. He, he had a very interesting life. He was, you know, some of this might be legend also. That's the point. Like the myth and legends are all wrapped up in what is history. We don't really know. And I don't really mind because I'm coming from that intuitive approach. So I don't see myth as false In fact as true. Often facts are f- more false than myth. Facts can be wrong, erroneous, uh, the perspective of one person. And myths often contain deep truths hmm. that aren't literal. Yeah. But his story is like the story of Moses or, you know, all the hero with a thousand faces, of Joseph Campbell. He was an orphan, abandoned in a basket outside of a monastery. Hmm. And um, he was taken in by the abbot. The, the monasteries in those days, it was very common to take in orphans and raise them. And then when they were when they were teenagers, they could decide if they wanted to. Uh, they were novices as they were young, and then when they grew up, they could decide if they wanted to be a monk or not. And he, um, his name Lu Yu, actually comes from uh, one of the hexagrams in the I Ching. When the when the abbot found him, he 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 was obviously a practitioner of the Book of Changes and used the oracle to see like you know what the this baby coming meant. Someone leaving this baby at the door meant for the monks and things, and um, the hex. He he drew a hexagram, and the hexagram is related to that name, Lu Yu, um, and uh, so that's what the the boy was called. And and apparently, very early, you know, he was a very great scholar, more of a scholar than a monk and and a poet, and um, but but also very spiritually inclined. And he um, he was gifted with tea very early on, and uh, the master even was said to only. want to drink the tea that he made and none none of the other monks were could serve him tea even as a boy um eventually he he left the monastery he decided not to be a monk and he actually uh, after the monastery he joined a circus and he traveled with a circus for some time and and uh, wrote theater and um studied uh eventually started devoting his life more to scholarly pursuits to poetry to writing to study to history to um calligraphy, and and especially tea. Mm-hmm. And eventually wrote, um, actually, several books on tea and water for tea and other tea-related themes, but only one of those has survived, the the, the cha jing, which we, we translated as tea sutra. Um, it's often translated as the classic of tea. But the word jing, actually, in Chinese is um, is is the word for sutra. Um, and uh, so it's, this, it's the exact same word. And some of these... Um, some of these Jing, you know, and now it's okay to call them classics because they're really old. But some of them were actually called Jing even in their own day, before they were technically classics. Mm-hmm. And um, the other thing is that um, early in the Tang Dynasty, Xuanzang, the, the monk who traveled to India and brought back so many so many Buddhist texts and icons and teachings and everything and started one of the biggest translation projects in the history of the earth... He established the criteria for translating Sanskrit to Chinese, which endured, you know, you could say until the present day. And it was basically, um, if a word was untranslatable, or if ch- or if translating it changed the meaning too much, they would just leave the Sanskrit and mm-hmm. figure out a way to like do it like phonetically, even with Chinese words. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Jing they translated because they have they had an exactly similar character because the word sutra actually is thread. It's like the thread that that um, sows us to the divine one could say there's you know or to all the teachings that have been and the the character Jing in Chinese actually also has the radical for sewing in it mm. so it's like the same root and the same word um, we translate it as sutra though not to like um, argue that sutra is a better translation than classic. But just that the word classic is a little incomplete, and we wanted to add dimension to the ongoing dialogue of translations. No one translation is definitive. We're not, our, our translation is certainly not definitive. Mm-hmm. There there has been, and may be m- many better ones. When we translate the classics, it's an invitation that hopefully, ins- as more people talk about them and learn from them, more people will translate them, and there'll be more translations available. And the greater amount of translations there are, those of us who are interested in studying can learn more.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, because even reading it in its native language is, is limiting sometimes the translation can provide insights that even the native can't mm. um, yeah. I, I can read the Tao Te Ching in Chinese and and actually there's a lot of English translations that have provided me with insight um, that the native you know was wasn't because it's maybe uh, obtuse or something so um you know we weren't trying to say that it has to be Sutra classic is fine, but just that the word classic is limiting and, and sutra also is technically correct and, and it helps to provide another uh, another insight because the character Jing has two reticles. On the right, it's like stretching or penetrating or path uh, and like, you know, unchanging scripture. And and the left is the reticle for silk thread. So it's a thread going through the path that like mm. guides you on the path, right? And this is certainly like Lu Yu's intent. We have to remember like, You know, modern scholars are like, Lu Yu's book is just a a guide to how to brew tea. There's nothing spiritual in it. That's actually false. There's tons of spiritual stuff in it, first of all. And second of all, as I said, Lu Yu did not live in a mechanistic, scientific worldview. He didn't live... No one around him, no aspect of his daily life was oriented thus. Mm -hmm. He did not, with his waking eyes, see this world as a bunch of matter. He lived in a chinese cosmology and mythology and he lived meditation and and taoist and buddhist scriptures and practices and holidays and life ways and and mystery and immortals wandering the mountains and and dragons and you know he lived in that world Mm -hmm. and so this teaching was contextualized in that and it very much is a is a sutra in that way it's a way to sew a thread through the practice through the path to understand the path and though it focuses more on practical things there's all kinds of uh allusions to deeper levels of of this including the symbols on his teaware which are all like basis of the elements and the five elements of chinese cosmology and the alchemy of of his brewing mm-hmm. and then all kinds of in his in the section on the on like historical references to tea there's all kinds of mythological stories that allude to spirituality and then um you know so he wasn't he was he giving a practical guide absolutely he was giving a practical guide how to brew tea Mm -hmm. but again this is where you get if you if you approach that through the lens of a modern psychology and you don't have a practice right again we're back to my statement again right the the critic who who writes a criticism of religion without religious feelings and practice criticism holds no force without the practice that is at the foundation of this which is that this is an incredibly spiritual human being he was raised in a monastery later in his life he returned to the monastery he returned to the mountains and spent the end of his life um the last you know 20 30 years in in seclusion mm-hmm. meditating he also wrote other books we don't know about including ones on water and things so was this a practical thing yes in the sense that you could write a manual on on the practical details of meditation sit in a posture like this put your hands like this follow your breath like this and it's just all this practical stuff but that doesn't mean that the practice of meditation is is, is fully encapsulated in just that list of practical formula you know you gotta remember in this day also words were carved on bamboo or written on very expensive paper and so everything was capped brief and and you know you had to be able to carry it around you had to be able to display it and look at it it had to be concise and the the important details to get down on paper are the method, so that's not lost when you die. Mm-hmm. The spiritual part, the the practitioner will find on their own. There's nothing to write about that, right? Dao fei chang dao. I know, know the dao that can be spoken about is not the dao. The dao that can be daoed is not the道. Mm-hmm. So the dao. So the 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 intuitive seeing part you can't write down anyway. So I'm just going to write the method for you. Practice this method and you you may come to some insights. You may cultivate yourself. But you got to remember that, again, that method was written from a human heart that lived in a completely different worldview than you and I live in and had a whole series of different habits in their day that included prayer and ritual and meditation and, and a whole worldview that included dragons and immortals and gods mm-hmm. and, and, and a living, breathing Ritualization of of that worldview, to the point from in every detail the calendar, the the day what they eat the day to day you know rituals and things everything included uh, a whole lot of of spiritual factors yeah so uh, saying that he was just writing a method in the modern way like he was some kind of scientist is not true he was an alchemist Mm -hmm. and so he his book very soon after he died became incredibly popular and influenced the whole Kind of literati, and they all started brewing tea in that way, which, and tea was being processed in that way. And basically, the processing at that time was very different. There's nothing like it now. Um, When we, when we sent, when we did this, uh, when we did the translation, we sent some green tea powder that people could boil in Mm -hmm. a tongue esque way. Right. uh, For that month, we called it tongue ish. So uh, the tea, the, the tea in the Tang dynasty was process very differently than anything we have nowadays. Um, If you actually if you go to um, the Ming book that we had in April 2017, and which is the translation of the Ming classics, and you look, let me find you look on page 57, you can see some modern reproductions of tong cakes. So tong cakes were basically leaves that were steamed and compressed. Not like poor, really like tightly compressed. And then they were kept in these like clay uh, boxes that had like holes in the back. These were used all throughout the Tang and Song, mostly by rich people. Again, you know, poor people would always have these things. But these like, they're like clay ceramic kind of boxes or like shelves. And you could put tea inside. And then there was a hole in the back where you could put usually charcoal and ash or a little bit of fire. And then the cakes were kept dry and warm. And so in the tongue, it was just leaves compressed, mm-hmm. real tight. And then before brewing, the cakes were roasted a little bit, and then they were you know ground apart, and then put into into boiling water mm-hmm. that had that was already boiling. And then the water was ladled out, all foamy and frothy because the the tea would would bubble. Mm-hmm. And the bowls were served like that. So in when we did the charging translation in september 2015 we sent out some green tea powder for people to try and boil but it's just like we called it we gave instructions we called it tang-esque tea mm-hmm. but if you look in the ming dynasty i know it's a little confusing uh we have three classics so far uh we're going to be translating one early next year and then another one in in 2020 um that are all Qing dynasty so far we've done tang dynasty which was lu yu's cha jing and we've done um the song dynasty which is Emperor Song Hui Zong. we'll get to him. And then we've done the Ming Dynasty, for four different authors in the Ming Dynasty. So if you go to the Ming um, issue, you can see some pictures on page 57 of some Tang-esque cakes. Why they're not in the Cha Jing issue of September 2015 is because I, didn't, I hadn't found those cakes at that time. I found those cakes in early 2017 when I was traveling in China. Somebody was re- trying to reproduce Tang tea uh-huh. for a museum and so i did if i'd had them they would have been in the charging issue obviously but they weren't so they i put them in the in the ming one so you could see so um so basically the the tea was was uh, the cake was was kind of roasted and then Water was boiled. A little salt was added, and then the the kind of it was a rough powder because it was it wasn't ground the way that we think of like matcha being ground in one, like in a stone grinder. It was ground by hand in a little ring that goes back and forth in a little trough. So it would have had like chunks and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then that was just put into the uh, boiling water, and it was boiled and uh, then ladled out
1: into bowls. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason why this method is not popular anymore is that to do with uh, labor intensive processing or because it doesn't make as good of a tea than other methods or or it's just fallen out of um, popularity or it just or f-
0: yeah i mean it's just fallen fallen out of it's not it's not done really anymore um it, it's uh we don't you know we don't all know all of even what like like some of the writing isn't so clear Mm-hmm. in Lu Yu's thing because it's also ancient so it can be interpreted chinese is a dense language and even certain characters can be interpreted three or four different ways mm-hmm. like reading sanskrit sutras or something so even when you're trying to get to a like a practical way to meditate and you read like the Satipatthana sutra you can still interpret it in different ways it's hard to get to the actual even though Lu Yu is talking about pretty practical things um there's room for interpretation and we're not entirely sure um he was also focused more on the brewing of the tea than on the, on the way the tea is processed. Though that isn't in, in that someone could just read it and produce tea that way today. Because at that time, there was a living tradition of tea producers that were producing tea that way. Right. So, um, you know, some things are just lost or changed. And we brew tea in different ways. But we certainly boil tea in our tradition. Uh, we got our April issue all about boiled teas. You know, we boiled. This is my favorite brewing method. Mm-hmm. So, and it's the oldest. And so it hasn't gone anywhere. So the the boiling tea goes way back before Lu Yu. Mm -hmm. Uh, People have been boiling tea for maybe 15,000 years. It's just boiling tea in this very specific, um, very detailed way with a lot of accoutrement Mm -hmm. and a lot of steps and a lot of refinement. That's what Lu Yu brought. And again, then it required money. So it was something, it was a brewing method that was... You know, he has a very specific kind of brazier, a very specific box for wrapping your teaware up because these dudes, they didn't drink tea like we do. You know, one of the important aspects of fine tea is the location where you drink it. Mm. My teacher always says in this day and age, we just hope for somewhere quiet with a little bit of green and some clean air. Mm -hmm. But in these days, they only drank tea in like bamboo groves at at moonlight (laughs) or on certain crags or cliffs, like tea drinking in very much included place. Mm -hmm. nowadays again we're happy for a table in a room that's (laughs) semi-quiet but in these days like they didn't they they would never have settled for that tea was you know these these the ones who are super into tea the real cha jin again there's people drinking all over tea all over china in all different kinds of ways household ways uh, as prayers everything in buddhist monasteries but you know these real like this this lu yu is kind of the he's not the oldest He's the oldest surviving example of this tea saint, of this person like us who has devoted his whole life to tea, of a chajin. Mm-hmm. He's not the first. Right. That there were uh, there's a tradition of tea sages wandering the mountains long before him. In fact, his book has a huge section of all these historical references to tea, including references to such other sages. But he's the oldest one that has survived. So he's kind of the tea saint, right? But he represents a whole body of people wandering the countryside and refining the art of tea, devoting their whole life into the the Tao of tea, the practice of tea. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's why he focused on the method and passing that on to the next generation and not all the spiritual insights, which are, you know, in Chinese were always secretive. Those were never public information. The actual meditation techniques, the actual alchemy, the actual spiritual stuff was always hidden. Mm. Right? In Taoism it was hidden in alchemical texts. And we have emperors dying because they are actually taking mercury and boiling it and trying to drink it mm-hmm. to get the pill of immortality. When actually the, the prescription, the alchemical prescription had nothing to do with actual mercury. It was a, it was a technique of meditation. Mm. Mercury was breath and the cauldron was the belly and you were doing like certain kinds of yogas. Mm-hmm. But they hid, they hid their techniques in practical manuals or poems in our tradition or other things so that ordinary people couldn't have access to them. They wanted you. It had to be unpacked by a teacher. And Lu Yu's book's like that. You can kind of read it, and you can kind of understand. If, you have a, if you're have if you immersed in a tea practice the way that, that I am, the way that we are, if you're immersed in a life of tea, then your ability to penetrate what it's trying to say will be deeper. But you still won't be able to penetrate it c- completely unless you were to f- find Lu Yu or one of his students and get access through the lineage. Mm-hmm. You'd, you wouldn't be able to fully penetrate its essence. You can't get into it without that. But you can get deeper than just reading it as like a a historical text and analyzing the knowledge, which is the topic we keep coming back to, right? Yeah. So he he boiled tea. So in those days, place was a huge part of tea. Location was a huge part of the art of brewing tea. It was essential. Mm -hmm. As essential as good quality tea and teaware and method. So it was tea, water, fire, utensils, method, place, people. Mm-hmm. These are the seven elements that make fine tea. Even today, right? They were just able because they lived in kind of this, yeah. with the right tea, mixed with the right technique, mixed with the right materials, and all done in a really refined way. But the boiling of tea on a simple level goes back fifteen thousand years. He's just taking it to a whole other extreme of refinement, boiling it to a very certain level, drawing the water and putting a bowl aside, adding that water back in, all these little refinements that are adding more bubbles, adding more. You know just changing the the messages and information of the spirit of this plant and Mm -hmm. our ability to receive it through refined brewing and processing right so he's like you know the beginning of what continues today in gong fu tea selecting the right water selecting the right tea being able to evaluate tea and which ones are good he's got a whole chapter on which teas are best right hardly any of those teas even exist anymore Mm. or some version you know later version of them maybe but you know how to select the right tea the right brewing the right materials the right accoutrement and the right method and then the place and the and the people and all that like and then the spiritual stuff that isn't recorded so much in the sutra it's in it's in between the lines
2: Hmm.
0: it's in there occasionally it pops out right you get phrases like the spirit of tea is simplicity very famous one or frugality however you want to translate it right boom like it'll, it'll pop out real real powerful and terse but um mostly it's it's it it like underlies it all remember you have to contextualize that this is a very spiritual person and so these writings are not some kind of technical manual written by a scientist in a laboratory they're written by a dude raised in a monastery hanging out in the mountains right uh drinking tea alone Mm. and meditating deeply yeah okay So then the second big character of the Tang dynasty is Lu Tong. Lu Tong was a famous poet, lived from 790 to 835. Uh, Really, really cool character. He, um, loved tea and same kind of vibe. He was a cha jin, really super into water, retreated to the mountains, um, built himself a cottage, retired from the world and, uh, wrote poems and painted and meditated and drank tea. And, uh, he in those days there was a lot of uh there's a lot of so-called tribute teas so the best teas were sent to the dragon throne and then um first of all along the way a lot of that would get stolen there was a lot of corruption being an official in the in some kind of position where you oversaw uh some kind of commodity or something always meant a lot of graft in the ancient world of course right one of the most powerful positions in ancient china was the minister in charge of salt because there was just such an ability to like graft and control things you know and so same with tea so you know the, as in some periods it's estimated that like something like 300 tons or something was supposed to be tribute tea but the throne actually only received 30 so along wow. the way like 270 would get like siphoned off and taken as graft um th- that's that statistic might not represent the whole entirety of the time that tribute tea was given but it's just one of the one of the i forget which time but i read that in a in a historical book and then you know of course the emperor himself doesn't need that much tea so a lot of even what did reach him which would be the best of the best he would then give as gifts it was one of the gifts that he would give to loyal officials all the time Mm. and then those loyal officials often maybe they're not even into tea so they get this big box of tea and it's enough for a year for them and their families they don't really drink so much tea they would also give it as gifts to friends and family yeah (laughs) and so someone gave Lu Yu some really high grade uh, tribute tea like Mm -hmm. the kind of stuff the emperor drinks and he made a whole like ceremony and day out of it of course as we would with some like ancient clifty or ancient poor or something you know he made a big deal out of it and wrote one of the most famous tea poems of all time which you know has a section in it which we call the the seven bowls of tea which i've translated uh very famous right the first cup moistens the throat the second shatters all feelings of solitude the third purifies the digestion reopening the 5000 volumes i've studied and bringing them to mind fresh the fourth induces perspiration evaporating all of life's trials and tribulations with the fifth the body sharpens crisp and the sixth bowl is the first step on the road to enlightenment the seventh sits steaming it needn't be drunk as one is lifted to the abode of the immortals hmm. and uh, this this poem that's only a part of the poem the, the there's actually the poem is longer and contextualizes the drinking of that famous tea. Um later on in life he actually he was killed in, in one of the eunuch uprisings. The eunuchs up uprose and kind of killed all the um all the officials who were not loyal to their cause and he happened to be visiting a friend in the city and he was staying at that friend and that friend's house was amongst those the eunuchs were against and so they came in and like killed everybody in the house and he was His head was cut off as well. Wow. Um, And so he died kind of violently. But uh, another of the in the long list of these kind of uh, tea heroes. Um, Then we get to the Song Dynasty, and in the Song, you know, again, this change doesn't happen overnight, and it doesn't apply to all people. We have to keep. I have to keep reminding, right? Underneath these big figures, there are millions of monks and nuns and tea farmers and tea ware makers who are all unknown. And you can only access them through a lineage that that still holds their life energy you know even if that lineage isn't practicing tea in the exact same way they did it's evolved and changed like our lineage but their energies in it mm-hmm. their life and their work some of them devoted their whole lives to tea farming or tea making or teaware making or tea brewing right so uh, in the song, and again, this is just one segment of the population. It's what became popular. And it also is, is uh, um, you know, so there, there are different brewing methods all throughout China. And, and there are all kinds of unknown people. But it became popular to, they started, they started, the same kinds of cakes were made. These highly compressed little cakes. But they started grinding the tea into powder and then compressing it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was like really ground up and then it was compressed. And then these cakes were again roasted, and then again ground into a powder, an even finer powder. And then the tea was whisked, and we get whisk tea. This is the time late Tang and Song is the time tea is going to Japan, and so that's why whisk tea survived in Japan, and though it didn't in in uh, in China. And of course, Japan evolved it and changed it, and eventually created matcha, which is you know matcha is not like the whisk tea of Song China, mm-hmm. which came from these cakes. Was so- the
1: Song Dynasty whisk tea? Were those cakes made of uh, green tea, or, or I mean what, what different- you could think
0: of as green tea, white tea also, um, but yet similar to what we would call green tea, but not really. Mm-hmm. Those class- that classification system just doesn't work. Uh, there's often a misrepresentation in the Western world that like the, s- the classification of the six, or what in our tradition we call the seven genres of tea, right that the seven genres of tea, according to our teachings right, are you know white, green, yellow, red, black, oolong and poor right? And then there's the, there's the older six genres of tea, in which case poor would be in the black tea category. There's often uh, misinformation or the idea that this is a traditional classification system. It's not. It was created by a professor in Anhui in the 70s and 80s and popularized at that time. So classifying tea according to these six genres or seven genres is very modern. Mm-hmm. I didn't go back. People didn't do that. That's the way tea is, but it's not. It's far more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. Um so don't get too lost in that. These are very different kinds of tea. Um, so it was it was the difference between the tang cakes and the song cakes is the tongue cakes were leaves compressed, whereas this is powder compressed. So the tongue was an actual leafed cake that was then broken and ground. And this is a cake of powder. Like you think of it like a cake of matcha, mm-hmm. although it wasn't ground that fine. The grinding technology has improved in Japan so that you can get the particles even smaller. It would be rougher. But um it was a it was a powder cake. Uh, of compressed tea like a, if you compressed a cake of maja almost and then that that itself was roasted stored in those same clay jars with the fire or charcoal to keep it warm etc and then it, that was ground into a powder and then it was whist water was added from a yu, an ear and it was whist and uh, in the Song Dynasty we have one of the most amazing characters in all of history there's a beautiful thick biography about him I recommend reading he's just one of my favorite heroes which is Song Hui Zong. he was the, uh, the an emperor he was the 8th Song Emperor And he was the 11th son. So he had like no intention of ruling. He wasn't trained to rule. He was like a complete uh, dilettante and like um, uh, hedonist. (laughs) Eventually when he was emperor, he had like close to 4,000 concubines. So his harem was just huge. (laughs) And they say that even then he liked to sneak out of the palace in disguise and go visit like village brothels, (laughs) which is amazing. Like, he just, you know, he, was, he wasn't meant to rule. He wasn't a good emperor in, in some senses. In other senses, he was, he was a huge supporter of the arts as a result because the empire that he, that he inherited was extremely stable and peaceful, mm-hmm. which he says in his Treatise on Tea, which we'll get to in a minute. But he, he uh, you know, he, he inherited a very stable time in the beginning. And so um, everything was peaceful and kind of easy. And so he supported the arts a ton, Mm-hmm. and you know started the whole like national collections of calligraphers and artists and and uh poets and, and craftsmen from all over the country collecting all this beautiful art and he was just a huge supporter of the arts and um and so he, in that he did good but he wasn't a good ruler because he was too focused on his own like whatever he was interested in in his own pleasures and stuff he just didn't rule well or strongly and so ironically he was the end of the of the northern song so no, song is 960 to 1279 but there's a break in the middle 1126 and 1127 where the manchus invade and the song uh court retreats south mm-hmm. and so he was the end of the um he was the end of that he was the end of the of the the song dynasty essentially and he was he died an outcast the manchus took him beyond the wall and he died and in, in, basically imprisoned um in their villages in Saad and sad and and poor not with any of the wealth of the palace. Mm. So um it's ironic that he that he talks about stability and then he's the end of that stability but he's an amazing character. Um and then he in 1107 he wrote the Daquan Cha Lun which is like we translate as the treatise on tea. Um the only emperor to write such a thing. And he knew a tremendous amount about tea like from the processing to the brewing. So the, the treatise on tea goes through like just like Lu Yu in a little bit less detail than Lu Yu, but goes through the processing of tea talks about his favorite tea, which was a white tea from Fuding, which was extremely rare at that time. It was just like eight wild bushes and Mm -hmm. they all, they all belonged to the emperor. Um, and so they were, they were really unique. Um, and that was, and that was made into those powdered cakes. It was like a powdered white tea and uh, that was his favorite tea. And all of the totality of those eight trees or 10 trees whatever it was went, went to him. Um, but then he wrote this, what, you know, what is amazing is he also brewed tea on his own. And this is a man who, you know, um, everything's done for him. Um, he was also an incredible calligrapher and artist. And at the time of his life, nobody appreciated his calligraphy. They all thought it was weird. And now, nowadays we look at it and actually see that it was actually incredibly special and unique and, and really beautiful. And if you go to the, um, To the issue where we translated the the Cha Lun, the treatise on tea, Uh, one of our dear friends and art historian, Michelle, she wrote an article that's in there all about his painting and calligraphy. And uh, his calligraphy, there's examples of it. It's a very unique style. There's no one in all the history of China that wrote quite like him. And nowadays, it's it's, uh, exquisite. And we know that it's just so powerful. But in those days, they thought he was weird. Like a lot of artists are like that, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, But he's one of my favorite characters. And there's a huge biography about him. I can't remember the author. Uh, But it's an incredible book. And uh, if you just type Song Hui Zong in Amazon, it'll come up. It's Mm -hmm. it's big. It's like 800 pages and wonderful. It's like the kind of book you can't sleep. Because his life's very interesting, full of ups and downs and and beauty. And if you want to go check out the, the, this is uh, April of uh, 2016. And you can read all about his life and read the treatise on tea and read this beautiful article by Michelle Huang on on Song Hui Zong, the artist, where you can take a look in detail at, at his calligraphy and how unique it is. Um, really powerful um powerful man Mm -hmm. and uh the the the, his treatise on tea is really cool too uh and it talks about the processing of those tea powder cakes and the brewing and then selection and water this is the common theme for all the um classics on
1: tea Mm -hmm. so you said he was the 11th son and had no intention of becoming an emperor Uh. and the reason why he became an emperor was was it because the other 10 died, or was well, that's why I
0: recommend go reading that book because his life is just an amazing, huge tale. You uh-huh. should go read the whole like the fall of the empire, the whole like how he became emperor, the whole of it. Just you gotta, <clears throat> there's no abbreviated way to tell it that's awesome. Go read the book because there's so much rad. Uh, details to his life it's it's really worth investigating um read the article in the magazine and then if you're still interested go way beyond that there's a beautiful article about his life by Stephen ao young who's one of the greatest tea scholars on this planet contributes Mm -hmm. to global tea at all of our classic series he's amazing and um check out his his article in the in the april 2016 issue on song Hui zong's life and then if you want more details go type get that get that book from from amazon it's a huge book it's really well written really amazing and his life is just so such a page turner Hmm. he's just one of the greatest characters in all of chinese history so um, i really recommend reading into all that Mm -hmm. because it's it's a it's a long epic and we don't have time here to go into like all the epic details of his life okay so moving into the ming dynasty uh, which we translated four Ming authors in April of 2017 because they're all shorter, so we put four in. But we have to start with the first emperor, Ming Taizu, the Hongwu Emperor. Um, Ming Taizu is a real character. He um, so he lived from 1328 to 1398. The Ming Dynasty again is is um, is uh, 1368 to uh, 1644, and um, This dude's amazing too. There's nobody like him in Chinese history either or I think in the history of the earth. He was a farmer's son. He's a peasant's son and then he was a monk. (laughs) And some people say he became a monk just to eat because there was like, because the end of the song, the whole country was in economic collapse Mm -hmm. and people were dying and so he just became a monk to eat, some people say. Um, But he was a monk for like 17 years so I don't buy that completely. Maybe that is why he joined. Maybe that's a part of why he was there but that's, you know, it's not to say that he didn't, wasn't a buddhist you know and then he became emperor mm-hmm. like again from there from farmer monk emperor like it's strange but it happened and um he was very practical he wasn't like a glamorous emperor he wasn't he was the opposite of song Hui Zong. he didn't have thousands of i'm sure he had concubines but not thousands mm-hmm. and he wasn't all into the arts and he he was into practicality and economic reform and so one of the things that he did was outlaw those powdered tea cakes Right now, here's we get back to my earlier point. When you say that in the Tong they boiled tea, in the Song they whisked in the Ming they steeped tea, you're wrong. It's such a misleading thing. The reason that he wanted to go back to that he wanted to make steeping tea the, the norm, the primary reason was economic reform. We'll talk about that in a minute. But he was raised as a farmer mm-hmm. drinking steep tea. Yeah. So that's to say, all through the Song and Tang, people were also steeping tea. Simple farmers weren't going off into the mountains to sit by waterfalls with silver braziers and special pots and cups and following. They couldn't even read, let alone follow Lu Yu's (laughs) instructions, let alone have the money to get that kind of tea and go to that kind of place. Mm -hmm. They just brewed tea. And he was raised in the monastery and in his home as a farmer, right, where tea is all over the kingdom now. Everybody's drinking tea. Mm-hmm. It's one of the seven necessities of daily life. Everybody in the country is drinking tea, right? Along with you know salt, oil, vinegar, soy sauce, rice, and uh, firewood. Firewood. It's the it's the it's one of the seven necessities, right? So it's essential for life at this point. There's tea houses everywhere, and as a farmer, you're sitting around steeping tea. It's simple tea. It's not that fancy whisk tea that comes in those fancy cakes that are all wrapped up and processed. Blah 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 blah, blah. and so again if you're saying that they just whisk tea in the song you're wrong people in simple places weren't always doing that there's all kinds of brewing methods always in in because there's all kinds of ethnicities and ways of life that's important to remember mm-hmm. right so um so ming Taizu, this these cakes they took the yield of tea is one of the most labor-intensive products on earth it's basically like one fifth one fourth so 20 kg of tea when it's dried becomes like five or four so you lose, you know, you, and, and it's a lot of labor. We always, on global tea trips, try to instill that in people, get them out processing tea so they respect tea farmers and realize how much work goes into it. So these powdered cakes, when you make matcha or any kind of powdered tea, it's even less. You, you get in the end, even less. So even less than one fifth, you might get one eighth or one tenth. Mm-hmm. And, and you, do, all, you do more work. And more work it requires more people, more time and less output. Mm-hmm. And he had been raised drinking steep tea. And for him, that was good enough. So he basically outlawed these things. But that doesn't mean it ended. If you look at the Ming text that we've translated in this April 2017 issue, which I encourage you to do, you'll see that most of them include still West T. Mm-hmm. Because it's not like he outlawed it and then it ended that day. It took like a hundred years for people to stop practicing it completely. Mm-hmm. You know, especially in a land where you know laws are flexible. <laughs> right but he was very serious about economic reform in fact he executed his son-in-law the son-in-law the husband of his favorite daughter who he loved above all else because he was caught taking graft and in fact it had to do with tea he was doing what i told you he was taking graft from the tribute tea that was supposed to be sent to the to the palace hmm. and he got caught doing that and taizu made a made a uh, example of him yeah because he was so like hardcore about uh economic reform Mm -hmm. that's how serious he was about it. he was super serious about it so um people began steeping tea it became popular again and this is when teapots happened this is when ishing rose as the teapot city because different kilns kilns were whole villages because it takes a whole village to fire uh to fire because they fire in dragon kilns so they fire the whole village is fires together because it requires an incredible amount of wood to get the kiln up to the right temperature Mm -hmm. so individual potters weren't firing so a kiln was a whole city a whole village And there was, you know, all the kilns in China started making teapots and things for steep tea, which became popular. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, but then Yixing overtook all of them and became the teapot capital of the earth, where every man, woman and child got involved in the teapot industry because the clay from there was so magical and made such special tea. And so uh, steep tea uh, did become the norm, but people were still boiling tea in Yunnan. People were still whisking tea. Right. And they were still whisking tea in Japan and they were still whisking tea all throughout t- for the next hundred years. And if you read these, we've, we've got, um, four translations in here, right? We've got, um, uh, a man named Zhu Quan who is 1378 to 1448. Uh, he's the 17th son of Hongyu. Yu. He's actually Ming Taizu's son, 17th mm-hmm. son. And he, um, he was actually, uh, he was actually putting like house arrest when he was a boy, palace arrest because of some political, uh, disputes amongst the children of Hong Yu about who was going to be the next emperor and w- then when he when he got older um and that ended he fled and went south and like basically just renounced politics and became a like scholar sage mm-hmm. and wrote <clears throat> and did calligraphy and drank tea like all these characters meditation Taoism, buddhism drinking tea uh, doing calligraphy living in the mountains alone he f- fled to the south of china and um then he wrote uh he wrote a he wrote the the tea manual, um, which again is is uh, how to choose tea, how to choose a location, tea wear, brewing method, all these water, all these things. And then we have another uh, one which is uh, written by a man named Chen Chunyan. We don't know anything about him when he was born, anything. But he, the book was edited by a very famous scholar and author whose name is Gu Gu, Gu Yuanqing. And uh, but the the actual author we don't know anything about. And then we also translated one um, Zun Hung who is uh, the grandson of one of the most famous artists in all of Chinese history, uh, Wan Zhengming, um, and his grandson was a scholar, and, um, and uh, he, he wrote uh, uh, something which is a beautiful, beautiful uh, treatise um, that we have here. It starts on, I believe it's um, right here. So it it's on, starts on, on page 33 of the, of the April 2017. It's called Superfluous Things. And it's a, it was a book all about um, gardens and scholar rocks and calligraphy and poetry and tea is, is included. And we've just translated the tea parts. But uh, there's a beautiful study of superfluous things um, that is done by a, a Westerner called uh, Craig Clunas. And it's, it's called Superfluous Things, Material Culture and Social Status in Early Modern China. It's University of Hawaii Press, 2004. Beautiful book. Um, and you can, you can go more deep into Wan Zhengheng's uh, Superfluous Things if you read that study, which is really, really good. And then we also translated Wan Long, his notes on tea. Um, he's also another uh, person who renounced the court. Past tests could have got into government um, because technically on the outside, china from Tang all the way to ching was a meritocracy so any human could test their way into high government positions Mm. actually on a day-to-day basis wasn't that simple Mm -hmm. there was also involved who you know and whose son you were i mean even in the simple fact that rich people had the money to educate their children enough that they could take the tests you know yeah so there's that but also part of the tests in the Tang and song were included interviews and so people were going to choose you know who they wanted and yeah. So there was there it's not that it was completely but um, it certainly was um, it certainly was that and in the Ming Dynasty we're, we're, we're shifting away from uh, whisking tea to steeping tea. and mostly it's steeped in large pots with large cups. as these artists sit around and talk and chat. this is how tea would have been brewed in the monastery and in farmers' homes, which is the kind of tea that Ming Taizu promoted mm-hmm. amongst all the literati and and through the royalty. And so uh, that became really popular. Big teapots, uh, big cups, long steeping times, and uh, and uh, the you know and sitting around and and either meditating or painting or doing calligraphy or talking or whatever it is, right? And so, this is where Western tea comes from, because Western tea is still in that style, the so-called whatever you want to say, British style, Brown Betty style, we call it in America, right? Of a big teapot, cups. What the Westerners added was a little handle, mm. the little ear on the cup, mm-hmm. but it's still like big cup. Uh, You know, big pot, long steeping times, Um, you know, because this is the time, you know, apart from Marco Polo, really few foreigners, uh, you know, stepped foot in China or Asia in general, really, until 1498, when Vasco da Gama of Portugal rounded the Cape of Good Hope and found India. And it was only 20 years later that the first European ships were in China, in Chinese ports. And so that's Ming. And so you get, like, is the Ming is the time when the West comes in co- contact with China and falls in love with tea. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, the mainstream brewing method is these large pots and large cups. And so that the kind of teaware and that kind of brewing method is what's exported to Europe mm-hmm. and stays till this day. And so that's how tea was was uh, was prepared in, in the Ming dynasty. And I invite you to read through those uh, those manuals. All these manuals really... Uh, can be broken down the same. They all are primarily practical manuals, right? But I still, I'm very opposed to divorcing them from spirituality because these were spiritual humans that lived in a spiritual worldview that included a mythological cosmology of five elements and gods, and they all prayed and had rituals and meditation, and they're all... In common, in that they, they're all cha jin that retreat to the mountains and drink tea in, like in a meditative stance as alchemy, as connection to nature, as like deep spiritual practice. And their, their poems and their writings betray that, right? and their interests do as well. And so you have to contextualize what they're writing. You can't just read these as manuals and assume these are just people approaching tea in a like modern way of just collecting data mm. and writing formulas for how to use that data to prepare tea. The, these aren't just collections of data. They include data. They include knowledge of how tea is made, where it comes from, and how to prepare it, and what you need to prepare it, right? And certainly some spiritual things poke through. But again, spiritual stuff was considered esoteric. It was You had to earn it. It wasn't just handed out. So they wouldn't write it down. They would write down just the formula, the method, which does you no good. My Zen master used to always say you can have the method, but you can't have the spirit. Hmm. The spirit is transmitted through the teacher, through lineage, right? That's the first part. And it also is... These methods, this is the second important part. These methods, you have to contextualize them. These methods of brewing exist within the life of a human being that, whose worldview and daily life is incredibly spiritual and religious. And when everybody around you in the whole society's worldview and daily practice is religious and, and spiritual, you don't need to talk about that so much, especially when a lot of that is not talk aboutable. It's ineffable, mm-hmm. it's the mystery. Here's the method. You go talk to the mystery on your own. That's still that way to this day. I don't. I, I teach method. I don't. You know. I talk about spirit a little more than these guys did because we live in a time where a lot of that worldview has died, and we have to restore that if you're to practice, right? But um, ultimately, you know, it's to introduce you to a brewing method. You take the method and you go cultivate the the experience yourself. In Buddhism, we have the four reliances, right? We more than we rely on the teacher, we rely on the teachings. Don't rely on the person. Rely on the teachings. And more than you rely on the words of the teachings, rely on their meanings. And more than you rely on the conventional meaning of the words, you rely on the deep intuitive meaning. And more than you rely on the deep intuitive meaning, you rely on your own direct experience. Hmm. So this is the four reliances in Buddhism, right? So it's the same thing today. So, you know, um, don't get caught in the idea that these were just, like, that these were like manuals, like what you get with a CD player or a recorder Mm -hmm. or some kind of electronic device like a how-to manual, and that's it. And these humans thought in this way. They didn't view the world in that way, right? They viewed the world with, as I said, lots of religion, lots of gods, lots of spirituality, lots of rites, lots of rituals, lots of immortals wandering in the mountains, Zen practices, Taoist practices, alchemy, meditations. Um, and and But the manuals all break down into the same things, right? They break down into... Those seven things I talked about that all Chajin practice from then until now, all the thousands of years of Chajin, we all practice the same. And the manuals break down in the, in the seven practical details, which are the choosing the right water, right? Which could be specific. They might talk about specific springs in their day, or they might be general, like, you know, choose spring water over river water, choose river water over well water or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. But choosing the right water, choosing the right fire, how to lay fire, how to make fire for tea, how to choose the right tea, how to how to select tea, how to know tea so that you choose the right tea for both, you know, spiritual medicine and also for, for what is quality, mm-hmm. what is fine tea, right? Then the right teaware, made of the right materials, made in the right way so that it's functional and and has form, and often in these manuals has spiritual significance, like Lu Yu's brazier that has the elements on it. And he says brazier should have the elements on, above their holes and things, right? Mm-hmm. And then the right method, right? so the right brewing method, and then the right location to drink tea, right? and then the right people to drink tea with. Mm -hmm. And that's the practical manual. And then there's the eighth thing, which is the unsaid thing, which is the spirit. And that's just not said in the manual because that's the part you don't get from a manual. That's the part you get from your own practice and from working with your teacher. That's the nonverbal part, the mystery, the -hmm. spirit, the part you have to cultivate yourself. So all these manuals are organized thus. And then, of course, when we move into the Qing dynasty, we move into Gongfu tea and the beginnings of Gongfu tea in the south of China. It starts in Chaozhou, spreads very soon from Chaozhou to the rest of Fujian and from Fujian to Taiwan. And it's, it's preserved in these three places, right? And Gongfu tea is born because of, uh, because of oolong tea. Mm-hmm. In fact, we, the word Gongfu might have been used to talk about the production of oolong tea, which begins in Wui. So cliff tea. That's the birthplace of oolong. Mm-hmm. The first oolong tea is cliff tea. So cliff tea, the oolong processing is more complicated than the processing of any tea, and it requires much more skill. So it it is possible historically. There's some debate, but it's possible that the first use of the term gongfu is in reference to the production of cliff tea, not in the brewing of it. Mm-hmm. So it's so it might have been literally called gongfu tea because it was a method to brew tea that was made with gongfu, as opposed yeah. to Using the word gongfu to talk about the brewing process, in other words. Mm-hmm. The brewing process was to make this tea that was made with gongfu, maybe. And so, oolong tea, and then martial artists, the philosophy of gongfu tea comes out of the philosophy of martial arts, and then also just the economy. These people in the South were poor and they wanted small pots. They didn't want those big pots with lots of tea, steep for a long time, because then you waste tea and waste uh, money on teaware that is bigger and requires more ma- raw materials to make and more time. So they wanted small teapots, small amount of tea, brew less, and you're more satisfied. Mm-hmm. right? More steepings, so you're more satisfied, and you don't need to drink so, so much tea, and you, you can save your money. Because as Lou, you said earlier, this spirit of tea is simplicity and frugality. In this uh, podcast, we're not going to dive too much into Qingti because we haven't yet translated our Qingti text. We got a big one coming. It's called the Xin Cha Jing, the New Cha Jing. And it's actually written by a descendant of Lu Yu in the Qing dynasty. And it's huge. So we're actually going to be publishing it in two parts. Uh, the first part, which will be the first five chapters of it, will come out um, early 2019. Mm-hmm. And we'll have an, a beautiful articles by me and, and another one by Stephen a. Young about the author himself. And then the second half of it, we're going to be translating maybe in 2020. Mm. um so uh, that's coming soon so we'll leave some of that discussion maybe for a later podcast so that we can talk about that and and also you know we're going to be doing videos on kung fu tea and the history of kung fu tea so in our brewing tea video series you'll be able to um we already have some videos up on our website but we're redoing a lot of our old videos so the brewing tea uh video series to, uh, the next video actually is going to start launching into some kung fu tea topics including history and background and stuff um so things changed a lot in the in the Qing dynasty, but throughout the Qing, most people still are brewing tea in large pots the way they were in the Ming, um, and Gongfu tea is just more of a regional thing mm-hmm. um, until the modern era. Wow. So, um, so those are some of the big characters. But again, I'd like to just end with a salute, with a raising of a bowl. Let's all raise a bowl if you're listening to this and you have followed us this far on this long, long journey. Right, raise a bowl for not for Lu Yu. So many bowls have already been raised to Lu Yu. Of course, if you need, if you want to some other time, raise a bowl to Lu Yu. I have great respect for the brother. He's a he's a constellation in the star. But tons of bowls of tea have been raised to Lu Yu, to Song Hui Zong, to, you know, One Long, to these these great stars in the history of tea. A lot of bowls have been raised to them. And if you want to raise a bowl, raise a bowl to them. And then, you know, over to Japan, to Takanoju and Murata Juka and, and Rikyo and all these big guys, Baisao, you know, lots of bowls of teas have been raised to these people, right? But more importantly, today, in your next tea session, on this very day or tomorrow, the next time you brew tea, set out a bowl instead for the millions and millions of unknown chajin, the ones that aren't a part of any historical record, the people who devoted their whole life, most every, most every breath of their whole life they devoted to the farming and processing and growing of tea, and handing those handing that skill down or the production of the art and craft of tea to which they didn't even sign their own name and the handing down of those traditions and then the tradition of preparing tea those seven things we talked about the water the fire the right tea, the methods the location all that stuff and the handing down of that Mm. because all those unknown people and all their sweat and all their blood and all their work Right? You can only really find it in a, living, in, in a living form. You can't find it in history. No, there is no record of it. But that energy still still lives in traditions like ours. It lives in my voice. It lives in my life, in my practice, in the things I do from the moment I wake till the moment I sleep. So um, raise a bowl for all the unknown cha jin that aren't a part of any historical record. And approach all these things from Intuition and from that deep space.
1: And uh,
0: until next time, Mm. it's
1: been great talking about the history of tea. Thank you so much for this discussion, Mura, and shedding some light and giving us a, a new, different perspective on the history of tea. Thank you so much for joining us on this exploration. If you enjoyed this episode, then of course, please share this with your friends and family and help us spread the word Your likes, comments and shares will go a long way and are deeply appreciated. Another direct way to support this project and the free tea center here in Miali, Taiwan that you can come and visit yourself is to sign up for our monthly ad-free magazine, if you haven't already, that covers all aspects of tea, from brewing and processing techniques to history, lore, spirituality and also the community aspect as well. It comes with a beautiful, sustainably produced tea every month To subscribe to it, go to globalteahut.org. If you're looking for more linear information on brewing methods, then perhaps go and check out our YouTube channel, also called Global Tea Hut. We hope you can join us next time when I sit down with one of Buddha's oldest students, Ching Yu, to discuss tea and Chinese medicine. Until next time.